Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and journalists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet, and it demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's guest is Joshua Farley, a professor of ecological economics at the University of Vermont. Josh's research focuses on designing an economy capable of balancing what is biophysically possible with what is socially, psychologically, and ethically desirable. Essentially, how to integrate the economy into the wider world, the natural world, rather than bending ethical principles and abusing natural resources for economic theory. The main theme we come back to repeatedly through the course of the episode is collaboration. Humankind's natural capacity to collaborate and the necessity of collaborative economies to confront the climate crisis. This is a big picture conversation about human values and common sense and how to deconstruct neoliberalism to allow those innate values to shine through how we approach ourselves, each other, and the world. I appreciate you doing this because uh, I'm really crappy at getting the message out, and I think the messages are worth getting out. Well, it's an honor to be doing this, and it all, I'm always gob left gobsmacked by um, when I get emails back from you know people like yourself being like, yeah, sure, of course I'll speak to you and come on your show. And it's like, oh my God, you know? But I just don't understand why more people aren't talking about the work that you and your colleagues are doing. You know, looking at the, the big picture and, and seeing the the interlocking mechanisms of things. The more I learn, the just the more obvious it seems that the solutions are to be found in the big picture. And yet, if you look at sort of what's being discussed at COP or in politics or even, you know, global business greenwashing, it, it's none of this. Yeah, no, no, it's true. And I, I was, to be honest, when I started doing my PhD in economics, I thought that what they were teaching me was very unscientific and basically immoral. And um, when I discovered ecological economics, I thought, wow, this really is the, the future of economics. And I totally thought that by now, everybody would have agreed to that. And that would be the only, you know, that would be the, the approach taught now. Sure. Yeah, it hasn't changed. Okay, well then, wh why do you think that is? And can you define ecological economics for anybody listening that hasn't heard of it before? So ecological economics, the basic idea is that we see the economy as a subsystem of the global ecosystem. So mainstream economists think that the economy can grow and grow and grow forever. And they acknowledge that there are, the economy has negative impacts on the environment, which they call externalities. Mm. And they acknowledge that the nature is a source of raw materials and a sink for our waste. They're, by calling it, our impacts on the environment are called externalities, and their goal is to internalize, to actually create price signals so that we can integrate all of nature into the economy, which really kind of explicitly says that the economy is the whole and nature is mm. the part, and nature needs to be integrated into the economy, and we're totally the opposite. The global ecosystem sustains all, um, you know, the economy and contains the economy, and we have to actually internalize our economy into the global ecosystem. So it's really a total flip. And we recognize that if we have a finite planet, then exponential growth is clearly impossible. And if we can't have exponential growth, then we've got to start talking seriously about distribution. You know, the idea is if we can grow our way out of poverty, 
then we just have a bigger pie and we don't need to worry about distribution. But if we have a finite uh, planet and our economy has to live within those constraints, then just distribution becomes really, really important as well. And that's, I mean, that's the gist, but we also acknowledge that the system is extremely complex and mainstream economics is based on this simple general equilibrium model. Everything goes to equilibrium um, based on a single feedback loop of price. And we realize we live in a wildly complex system with, you know, millions of different feedback loops. And the idea that a single feedback loop could drive us to sustainability is fantasy. Mm. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what a price signal is, but there seems to be, um, uh, what is what is the word? Like a logical fallacy within neoliberal economics own thinking, which is that the market will provide. Like the market is almost this kind of external uh, being that will be able to follow, you know, the um, supply and demand of mankind and provide what needs to be done. But then again, if you have to create price signals in order to integrate something into that economy, then in within that own logic, um, yeah. the market cannot provide, surely. Well, and so the markets, they do understand, mainstream economists understand that for things to fit into the market, they need to be what they call excludable, which means um, I can use it and keep you from using it. So the idea being like, if I have a store, yeah. um, I can keep you from taking the things in the store without paying me. So they're excludable. Hmm. And if you could just come into the store and take whatever you wanted, clearly I wouldn't have a store. So basically by what I mean by excludable is you need to have private property rights to things. Because without that, you can't have a market. And you also... Um, there are certain things that my use doesn't leave less for others. So like this, ideally this podcast, one person seeing it doesn't leave any less information for somebody else. And, you know, you go out on a beautiful sunny day, you're used to the beautiful day or the sunshine or the stable climate or the ozone layer doesn't leave less for others. And in that case, markets are inefficient because they would ration access to anything via prices. So that's how markets work. They allocate resources to those who can pay for them. And to have a market, you need to have, um, you know, you need to make things private property and uh, exclude them from use for people who don't pay. But clearly, if something is not worn out by others using it, if there's just as much left after my use, just as much less for you, which is the case for, you know, many of our ecological functions and for information, then it's just wildly inefficient to use markets to ration access. Mm. So mainstream economists do recognize that, that these are problems. And for things that you can't put a price on through market mechanisms, which is really the case for climate change and, yeah. you know, water pollution for all sorts of these things, they acknowledge that's a problem. But what they then think is, well, we could figure out a way to calculate the price. And the typical approaches are very bizarre. Like they interview people to ask them how much they think something is worth, how much they'd be willing to pay for it mm -hmm. and take that information. And, and then, you know, they could then provide a, a feedback signal, a price. So if... So, for example, if people say, well, I think that, um, you know, a nice view of the uh, Grand Canyon is very important and that's being destroyed by smog from fossil fuel power plants, then you could, you know, figure out what people, how people value the beautiful view and then impose, integrate those values into the cost of producing coal. So that would be internalization. And so one, a recent study actually found that, um, not that recent, but a few years back, that the healthcare impacts of coal, so the, you know, the particulate matter and the air pollution that causes asthma and lung disease and all these things. If you look at the cost of healthcare and the particulates and matter in coal and the effect that that has, then there's actually no profit to be made in the coal industry. Right. Yep. And of course, that probably has something to do with the excessive expenditures we have on healthcare too.
<laughs> which mm. doesn't fit the market very well either. And th this is, a, and actually, that was only looking at healthcare, ignoring all other costs. And you know, the coal mines tend to leave devastated landscapes, and of course, there's climate change. So it is a really horrible failure of any kind of economy that doesn't account for these real costs. The question is, can you measure a lot of the ecological costs and monetary value? And how do you do that? You know, especially with things like climate change that are going to cause, you know, global devastation, huge, you know, famines, all these. How do you assign a monetary value to that? And that's actually one of my biggest concerns with economists is how they assign monetary values, which is all based on preferences weighted by purchasing power. So if you're poor, you have no money. We don't give a crap how you value something. You can only value things if you have money in, an econ in a monetary economy or a market economy, I should say. Mm -hmm. This actually ties into a lecture of yours that I was listening to, in which you said that according to market economists, um, the environment is a luxury good. Yeah. And it's because it's only the wealthy that have the purchasing power that can then claim what exactly? Well, so the basic case, so this is a very widespread view. Um, you can find like Lawrence Summers will say this, who's, you know, uh, the president of Harvard, one of the chief advisors of economic advisors of Clinton, I think, um, that that basically uh, poor people are too busy worrying about meeting day-to-day -day needs to be concerned about environmental amenities, is how many economists talk about it, as though the environment just provides a few little extra benefits. Um, and they'll make this claim that the best way to protect the environment is as people get richer and richer and richer, they are more willing to focus on things like um, the environment. So we get cleaner air, cleaner water as pressure builds, uh, to address other things besides meeting basic human needs. But in reality, it's the poorest people who depend most directly on healthy environments yeah. um, for everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's... That's the most absurd thing I have ever heard. I mean, if you... Yeah. It, and it's also the most westernized thing. Okay, sure, maybe somebody living in the ghetto of New York City doesn't have time to think about the environment yeah. because they're having to do whatever they have to do to survive. Yeah. But they're not the poorest people in the world. The poorest people in the world are in third world countries that are dramatically, deliberately underdeveloped that yeah. do depend on their forests or their lands or whatever to survive. And they absolutely depend on it. So, you know, somebody rich like us, you know, if, if uh, we devastate the environment and get polluted water... Well, we can afford filtration systems yeah. and other, you know, things like that. Yeah. And if there's, uh, you know, we cause climate change and um, are threatened by these devastating storms, we can, you know, build stronger houses or hop in our cars and leave, go somewhere else. Mm. Whereas poor people do not have those options. And I thought Katrina was a superb example of how the poor people depend more on the environment and, you know, really in many ways value it more than the wealthy because, when Katrina came, they couldn't hop in their fancy SUVs and drive away or fly away or move away. They're stuck there. Mm. And, you know, that's very clearly the case, I think. Yeah, I think it's almost such a comically ridiculous idea that, um, you know, the environment only matters to the rich. But then again, you know, most of the economists who come up with these things are very, very wealthy um, and have never missed a meal in your, their lives or anything. It's yeah. You can look at almost any economics textbook and they will tell you, mainstream economics textbook, that there's no difference between wants and needs. And that alone, I think, is the <laughs> stupidest thing um, anybody could ever believe. And what, what they say is also that um, we need to be objective scientists. And I can't peer in your brain, into your brain and say how much pleasure you get from consuming different things. So therefore, I can't say that your pleasure in using a cell phone is greater than mine. I can't compare those. And by that same standard, I can't say if some destitute mother trying to feed her kids 
you know, they're, to meet their basic needs, they don't grow up stunted and uh, malnourished. I can't say that she values that food any more than some overfed American who's going to throw 40% in the garbage. Oh, come on. I find the whole premise of ecological economics so fascinating. And even the fact that there would be anything other than ecological economics. Yeah. That, that's the thing that I find uh, scariest about it. Because I think, you know, when we look at sort of all the problems there are in the world, especially as a layman, we assume that the experts somewhere are on top of it yeah. and adequately understand that which feels quite instinctual to the rest of us. You know, that, yeah. like the economy is a part of a greater thing. It's a part of the whole global uh living and lived experience not that nature is only part of the economy and that's it because nature was there long before the economics was and mostly nature's ignored so i mean historically economists said um uh, production requires labor capital and natural resources mm. and then that was like back in the i mean you know basically from the times of adam smith in the 18th century and then over time by the midnight by the late 19th century economists had said all production requires only labor and capital. And if you Google economic production function, it will show you that all output only requires labor and capital. And so to the point where occasionally you'll find production functions that include raw materials, um, almost never raw materials, because really raw materials and energy are required for all economic activity. You'll never find a production function, or you rarely find a production function that includes raw materials. And when they do, they include it is perfectly substitutable with labor and capital. Can I can I interrupt then and ask, is this the issue with circular economy? Because I had Simon Misha on the podcast and he was saying the problem is that people don't include uh, not, like the, the resources that are going into the economy. They're sort of excluded. Is that because it's based on these um, old equations which have reduced it to purely labor and capital? Right. And well, so that's, that's part of it. But they also, um, Simon Misha probably like focuses on energy issues. And energy, of course, um, you know, except for solar energy, we burn energy, we generate waste, you know, whether it's fossil fuels or nuclear waste, um, you know, every time. So first of all, when you burn energy, you know, you physically convert it into a more useful form of energy, but also waste outflows. And there's no way to make that circular. There are these eco-modernists who claim that we could have nuclear power plants that would suck carbon dioxide back out of the air and turn it into fossil fuels again, which we would then burn. Which, of course, though the laws of thermodynamics say when you convert one form of energy to another, you lose energy in the process. Right. So it would take much, much more energy to uh, convert carbon dioxide back into energy. But... You know, it's, it's very bizarre. And, and people who are doing this know that. I mean, there's, uh, um, you know, the eco-modernist movement. They understand the laws of thermodynamics, but somehow they still claim that it would be, we could have this complete circular economy where we literally suck carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. Um, but why you would spend more money to do that than you got from burning the fossil fuel in the first place right. is hard to fathom. Right. Even from like a purely neoliberal economist perspective, like with the world that we live in today, who's going to do that? <laughs> that doesn't yeah. make sense and, and, on any level. And it's just a loss of energy. So you're putting yeah. more energy in than you get out. And that's just stupid at any level, even if you yeah. ignore economics, you know, yeah. from thermodynamic perspective, it's just idiotic. I had a Steve Keen on the podcast, which is kind of what got um, Planet Critical down this road. And I kept just repeating myself and to him, but, but why? Why? If people know this, why are they still doing it? Why? And he was just, you know, laughing because you can only laugh at this stage. He was like, yeah. you know, they just be like, yeah, they know, but they can't kind of come face to face with it because essentially what 
we need to do is a complete overhaul of our value systems yeah. uh, to create a new economics. It's not yeah. neoliberal economics that's going to save us. But the interesting thing, though, is that economists do completely overhaul our value systems. So there's tons um, of studies that show taking a single course in economics changes people's value systems. And I saw this in my PhD that when I started the PhD, lots of students rejected the basic ideas and rejected the basic way of thinking. But after, you know, four years of being indoctrinated in this, uh, you know, this worldview, they came to accept it. And it's really well studied that people who study economics become um, more, you know, uh, more self-interested, less willing to help others, uh, more. They behave more like the kind of the model of homo economicus is the self-interested, rational actor who doesn't care about anything or anybody except their own utility, which is entirely driven by consumption. Oh my God. So it becomes a negative feedback cycle. Yeah. And so, and, and so it, it is a feedback cycle. And this is one of the huge challenges of social sciences that every social scientist I know, they're not trying to objectively study the system to see how it works. They're trying to understand the system so we can transform it to better meet their moral values. Okay. And, uh, and so I'm very obviously trying to do that. But the set of moral values that mainstream economists are trying to satisfy, you know, their equations, it all boils down to the maximization of monetary value. And, you know, as I gave that example earlier, if I want to maximize the value of a loaf of bread, then if I, if a rich American will pay me, you know, $3 and throw, you know, 40% of it in the garbage or some destitute woman who needs to feed her kids in some impoverished country can only afford to pay me 30 cents, well, it's, you know, it increases uh, what they call um, economic surplus more selling it to the rich person. So the economist says it's more valuable when sold to the rich person who's going to throw it away than when sold to the destitute person who can't feed her kids. But that denies the entirety of, of human history, which is seen as collaborate in order to progress and yep. in order to ad yeah, advance uh, i'm yep. reading david graber and david wengrow's uh, new book at the moment you know i yeah. will be reading that within the next week or two yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and it's like their premise is amazing and somebody else I, I can't remember the name which is awful but somebody else oh, of course ugo bardi he came on the show and he was like you know um D darwin darwin was wrong it's not about competition it's about collaboration it's about collaboration well and that's darwin actually acknowledged that Darwin acknowledged that the group with more altruistic cooperative individuals would outcompete other groups. He Did was very he? Listen about that. Yes. Okay. He, well, he, what happened? Why is that not part of the, the the mainstream knowledge about what Darwin said? So, what's kind of interesting is that um, uh, in socialist countries, their leading evolutionists actually focused on cooperation, um, <laughs> and of course, we focused on competition, and you know, and and it's even. Even since then, it's kind of, there's been an interesting parallel that, you know, Darwin really came out with this idea of group selection. And that was a fairly supported idea up into the early 60s, I think. And I, and I, I haven't followed it all the way back, but when, um, you know, when we had Keynesianism and it was recognized that the government had a role to play in the economy and redistributing wealth and, you know, kind of facilitating cooperation. Um, at the same time, we had those views in mainstream economics. There were the views in mainstream evolution that the group with the most altruist and cooperative individuals would outcompete other groups. Um, but over time, the and basically, it is true that this is called um, group-level selection. And the theorists thinking about it weren't thinking about it that clearly. And a lot of the ideas were shot down. 
Um, and so for a long time, when we had neoliberal economics, which is, you know, competition, competition, everybody in it for themselves, in evolution, there was a very similar idea, like, you know, Dawkins, the selfish gene, it's all about selfishness. Um, and then some economists or some evolutionists like uh, uh, David Sloan Wilson and E.O. Wilson both recognized um, that actually evolution can act at the level of the individual, clearly does, in which case genetics is the, you know, the, the inherent genes are the inheritance mechanism, but it can also act at the level of the group, in which case culture is the inheritance mechanism. And in my view, culture that humans, our ability to achieve anything is based on our ability to cooperate. So, you know, take a look at anything in the room where you are right now. Would you know how to reproduce that from scratch? Oh, so no. See, yeah. I'm and useless. Like, and it includes like your, you know, your shirt you're wearing. You would have to know how to grow. You'd have to know about agriculture and you'd have mm. to know about metallurgy. You'd have to know. So the basic idea is that all knowledge we have is the cumulative product of thousands of years of history. So it's billions of people over thousands of years creating this knowledge that no individual can survive without. So in my view, you know, we recognize this huge evolutionary breakthrough when we went from single cellular organisms that came to cooperate as multicellular organisms and could not survive apart from the, the organism as a whole. Like my cell can't survive without me. But humans have made another major evolutionary transition as well as some other species with culture in which we can't survive apart from the collective. So we have this bizarre idea, especially in America, with individualism. These people, mm -hmm. it's, you know, I'm an individual, I'm a rugged individualist. People couldn't survive for a week. I, I, I always, I think it's so comical. To go to the bathroom in a hygienic fashion requires, you know, knowledge of metals and ceramics and, you know, biology and all this knowledge that no single person could possibly contain. And so just like as a cell in my body to get rid of its waste needs to coordinate activity with the, you know, billions of other cells, any human to do anything has to coordinate activity with billions of others. And so this ability to cooperate at a larger and larger scale has been the secret of, of our success. And I look at uh, culture and working together collectively, I think all ethics and moral values are really focused on how do we work together as a group? And I do this experiment, which came from a David Sloan Wilson book. Or I always ask my students, you know what I mean? Five characteristics of a good person and five characteristics of an evil person. Mm. And every time the evil person puts the individual ahead of the group and the good person puts the group ahead of the individual. Yeah. So I actually look at the cultural, you know, the cultural ideas, the which I think is norms, ethical values, morals are the inheritance mechanism, the selective building blocks of cultures, just like genes lead to the, you know, the how individual humans evolve, but our values and norms lead to how society evolves. And we're now facing a set of problems such as climate change and biodiversity loss where individual choice is meaningless. I can't decide how stable a climate I want. And private property rights are impossible. Mm -hmm. I can't say, oh, you know, I haven't, I don't drive a car, so I get a stable climate. You know, those are out of the question. So it really means that only collective solutions are possible. So can I can I ask though, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but no. I have to ask, um, does that theory of the, the the collectivity of the group helping the advancement of the group, does that only work when there are multiple groups? Yes, because... so that's an excellent point. So the, and this is the dirty little secret of, um, you know, uh, cooperation and good behavior. It's 
a group implies a non-group. And the idea is that, you know, uh, nature red and tooth and claw is individuals competing against each other. Mm -mm. But with group level selection, it's actually groups competing against each other. And there's some theorists who actually argue that our, um, you know, our best attributes as humans, our willingness to sacrifice for others and put the group ahead of the individual was often driven by war. Yeah. So we're at war with somebody else and nothing bonds you more tightly together as a group than being attacked by another group. Yeah. And so in my view, so this idea about multi-level selection, um, it's so group selection, um, you can think of it as multi-level selection. Selection occurs at many scales and we're eukaryotes, meaning that our cells have a nucleus and mitochondria. And we now know it was actually the fusion of two totally different life forms of archaeans and bacteria fused together in a cooperative way to create complex life. And so that this idea that you can even have cooperation across species, and it actually builds up to the fact that in an ecosystem in which there's a few species that just want to consume all the resources without paying attention to the others are very likely to disrupt that ecosystem. But you could have, if species actually constrained themselves and, you know, kind of, and it would just evolve this way that they um, did less harm to the ecosystem. Well, that species is more likely to persist. I think we've arrived at that point where cooperation is no longer just between groups of humans. So, you know, we, we want cooperation in groups. Now we have cooperation of groups, but we've got to really think about, you know, seeing ourselves as part of this global, you know, an inherent part of this global ecosystem. And we better think about putting that global ecosystem above our selfish interests if we want to persist into the future. Mm, okay, because as you were speaking, that was kind of the first thing that, that came to mind for me was, well, maybe we're sort of at this problem of the climate crisis where really nobody seems to be putting adequate solutions on the table or able to confront it because it's the first time in human history where humanity is the group rather than yeah. be, there being a non-group for us to go to war Absolutely. with. Absolutely. And so this is the challenge we face. And I'm actually, you know, I think humans are capable of pretty profound cultural evolution very quickly. And, you know, genetic evolution passes down in a lineage. So it's a vertical parent to offspring, but cultural evolution ideas can go sideways. So we don't have to wait to raise the next level. We can, we can get ideas and spread them very quickly. And we now have incredibly sophisticated means for doing that. That's Mm -hmm. part of the reason I look forward to talking to you because you are one of the, you know, nodes trying to communicate this message, get it out there quickly to change our culture in a way that needs to be changed if we choose not to be suicidal. Hmm. Okay. 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 But what kind of, what shift in, in human value, and can we even talk about human values? Because if human values have been about the cooperation of within a group and then of groups, and then it kind of becomes recognizing oneself as part of a larger ecosystem. I mean, gee, it's all very uh, religious in a sense, isn't it? So how do we start to address those values which are inherently instinctual if you ask your students what's a good person and what's a bad person yeah. we know what it means we, we know essentially what has to be done yeah. but are we too far down on a neoliberal paradigm essentially yeah. where um people are still thinking is there's not even groups anymore there, there's me and then versus the rest of the world yeah. i haven't formulated that very well but no, 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 I know exactly what you mean and i think so there's very interesting you know how do we figure this out and I've been reading a fair bit lately of um, uh, 
you know, I think there's been over romanization of indigenous cultures. I mean, there's really, there's so many indigenous cultures, but, um, but people like Robin Wall Kimmerer had some really interesting insights and, you know, our relationship with nature is very instrumentalist. We look at, you know, like, uh, you know, the Bible says, you know, God created earth for man's benefit. We have dominion over the earth. We take these things for our use because they were created for us. Whereas a lot of traditional cultures had this idea is nature is providing us with these gifts for which we must reciprocate. Mm-hmm. And I think just that little mental shift. And I, I look at this because I'm very interested in um, essential resources in general, things we absolutely need, which includes healthy, well-functioning ecosystems, but also food. And economists are all obsessed with efficiency. And, you know, for most of human history, the person, you know, the hunter who went out and got like a big elk, more than that person could eat. They didn't have good storage techniques. I mean, they did some, but it's still a lot of work to store. But if you have a surplus of food, the marginal value, the benefit to you is incredibly small. Mm. If one of your neighbors or somebody in your group has too little food, the marginal value is immeasurably large. So the efficiency of a reciprocity-based system in which I give my surplus to those who don't have enough, I have a very small decrease in utility. They have an immense increase in utility. So from a perspective of efficiency, it's wildly efficient. And every interaction, um, you know, when I, uh, so I, I come home with an elk and I share it with my neighbors and they're all fed and they now, it's human nature. They want to reciprocate. They want to be nice to me. And so when they have a surplus of something, which very often doesn't do them much good if it's essential resources, and I have a deficit, then they can share with me. Each one of those transactions creates a huge increase in benefits, and each transaction strengthens our social ties, brings us together into a community. And in contrast, you go to the store, I plop down some money, get some food, you know, the monetary exchange, there's no reciprocity. I'm not writing a thank you note to that store, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And just this idea that, Reciprocity was a really wonderful, efficient way of managing a lot of human exchange. And I think that if we can extend that to our relationships with nature, where we look at nature as providing us with gifts for which we should reciprocate mm-hmm. by you know, helping maintain systems that keep balance, instead of just, you know, oh, God put that there for us to use however we want, um, and we just take it, and then we try to maximize its value to us. And I think of this, too, that if... Um, you know, if you're in a gift economy and somebody gives you something, you would never think, oh, what's the least equivalent gift I could give them? You know, I want to make sure I get a lot more from them than they get from me. Mm. You'd be looked at as a sociopath. Yeah. Whereas in a market economy um, where these instrumental values, you go to the store, you want to give them the least possible amount. You know, so if you get a great deal at a store, I gave very little, I got a lot of exchange. Oh, great. I feel good. Whereas if you do it in a, uh, a friend, you give somebody a gift for Christmas and they give you something 10 times nicer, you actually feel kind of bad. Mm. And it's just radically different ways of thinking and behaving. This is also fascinating. <laughs> we got off the topic. Once you get me talking about evolution and stuff, then I get carried away. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's amazing though. It's, 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 yes, it just, it just, you know, it, it's like, you know, it seems so obvious to, to somebody that, somebody that isn't an expert in anything, just kind of, you know, checking in with what I think about my own community and how I like to behave, you know, all just seems so obvious. But you were talking about the, these ideas that we, we could spread sideways. I mean, that's some, okay. So the reciprocity with nature. Um, but is that possible? Because I think that people seem to think that, um, not is it possible, but is it possible in doing it in a way where we don't 
kind of slide back into an age where we have to go out and hulk and hunt elk to feed yeah. ourselves. Because I think that's essentially what we feel, the, the choice that we feel we're being presented with. Essentially, all of the progress of the past millennium being lost, or two millennium being lost, um, in order to essentially start again because we went wrong somewhere. Like, what is a way that we can reorganize the economy or our social relationships, but not also lose the technological development, which have lifted billions well, of people out of poverty yeah, and, sure. you know. Well, and this is one of my views is that, you know, we, um, so the free market economy, or, you know, the capitalist economy um, and free market, I should say free market used to mean free of monopolies. Now <laughs> <we> define, Sorry. <laughs> and now we define it as free of government intervention, yeah. which means free reign to monopolies. Yeah. So we really have completely distorted what free market economics means. But the capitalist economy arose exactly at the same time as the fossil fuel economy. So with this huge amount of energy that allowed us to do like anything we wanted. And, but we, and, and, you know, fossil fuels actually kind of fit into this paradigm of the market that you have private property rights to them. And if I use it, you can't. So we're competing for use. So it's this free market idea, but we now really do live in an information economy and knowledge improves through use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reason I'm a professor is so that I can share my knowledge with students and they return it better than they got it. You know, they, um, so, and so this idea of using prices to ration access to knowledge is incredibly perverse, especially uh, technologies, for example, that protect, that help restore or protect global ecosystems or that enhance social justice. Those are the technologies that should be freely shared. And the interesting thing is even within the laws of mainstream economics, they will tell you that price should equal the marginal cost, which is the cost of producing another unit. Mm -hmm. But in the case of information, it's the cost of sharing information. And the cost of sharing information is essentially zero. So, you know, you have um, these pharmaceutical companies where the U.S. government paid a lot of them, gave them all the money they needed to develop vaccines. And thanks to the um, 1980 Bay Dole Act, prior to that, when the government paid for the development of knowledge, that knowledge had to be available to everybody. Uh, in 1980, we decided we would allow private sector to uh, patent and privatized knowledge paid for by the government. And now, you know, um, right now we see this new strain of COVID arising in Africa. Um, and actually in 2015, I wrote an article about this saying, if we get a pandemic and it's spreading around the world and pharmaceutical companies aren't have patents on the vaccines and charge the highest price the market will bear, we're guaranteed huge swaths of the world population will not have access and we'll get new variants evolving that will affect even the people who got vaccines. And so the so the point about this, though, is that knowledge, our modern economy, is even better suited to cooperation and sharing than a food economy. Because if, I, if you eat part of my elk, I have less elk. If you use my ideas, I'll get them back from you better. And so it's a, oh, so really we're in a perfect condition, position to change the way we view the economy. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, so I'm a, I'm a big, I mean, a, a huge believer that knowledge should be free and that it maximizes its value. So if I develop a clean, decentralized alternative to fossil fuels, um, first of all, no matter how much sunshine you capture in England, um, or wherever you are right now, um, has no impact on my ability to capture solar energy. 
And the ideas required, the knowledge technology to require it. If we develop some great new solar technology here and share it with the Chinese, their scientists are going to make it better. So we're moving from an era where we're competing, unavoidably competing for fossil fuels and which competition markets kind of make sense, except for the fact that the negative externalities of fossil fuels will destroy civilization. Mm. Um, but now we're moving into an era in which, you know, we're not competing for sunshine. And the knowledge for capturing that sunshine gets better with use so that suddenly we're moving into a world where cooperation makes so much more sense um, than it used to. Okay, well, maybe it makes sense, though, to an ecological economist, but to those who are in, to the economic advisors who are standing next to the world leaders whispering in their ears who have done the four years of study and who've had their values and morals changed by studying yeah. economics and by being pulled into that, that neoliberal paradigm, then, then what do we do? How do we get to them? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because I've had these conversations many, many times um, with, uh, you know, hardcore economists and they can't find any holes in my argument. Yeah. And they will, you know, so one of the arguments I often talk about is, and this, I don't know if you want, this will take like five minutes if you want to. Oh. Um, um, but uh, so the idea about markets, why economists love markets is that um, everybody gets free choice. Nobody's telling you what to do. You choose what to produce or what to uh, consume. And as a reason, the idea is, what is a resource is scarce. So demand exceeds supply that leads the price to go up and leads consumers to demand less and suppliers provide more. And then the way the market works is if I can, the, the market allocates raw materials, energy, et cetera, to the person willing to pay the most for it, mm -hmm. which is the corporation or firm that can add most value to it. Mm -hmm. So I will pay more for a barrel of oil if I can generate more value at, from than my competitors can. Right. And then the market allocates the resource to the person willing to pay the most for it, which they say, oh, that ensures it goes to the person who values it the most. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and therefore, but, but so the idea is that we have this system that uh, it's negative feedback loops drive us to an equilibrium in which resources are allocated to those who value them most and it maximizes economic surplus, which is monetary value. And the huge flaw with all this argument, though, is we're always focusing on monetary values. Yeah. So I'm really interested in essential resources. And I look at this in the case of food. So when food prices, when food becomes scarce, so 2007 to 2008, we had a food crisis and the supply of grains became scarce. The price of wheat tripled. Mm -hmm. And so the market would say, well, that will lead people to reduce consumption. But the fact is, food is a necessity. You know, the demand when the price goes up, you know, if you go to a country where food is cheap, you probably eat just the same amount as if you go to a country where food is expensive, yeah. meaning that food doesn't really respond to the price signal or, you know, demand for food doesn't respond to the price signal. Right. And the supply of food, of course, if the price of wheat is very expensive, so all these farmers, um, you know, or the price of corn was seven fifty dollars a bushel in 2008, all these farmers said, oh, we're going to produce more corn. Um, because it's so expensive, but it takes a full growing season to produce more. And because the supply, so when, so they all plant like mad, produce more corn, but when there's more corn, we don't go out and eat more food. Instead, the price plunges. So the price of food is actually more closely, or the, the supply of food is more closely linked to prices from a growing season ago or a year ago. And so the, on the supply side, the price mechanism is broken. On the demand side, the price mechanism is broken. And then the market allocates the food to the person willing to pay the most. And I did a study actually 
showing um, an econometric study showing by how much individuals reduce their consumption of food in response to a 1% increase in price. And people in the poorest countries who consume the least systematically slash consumption by more than people in the richest countries. You know, no American ate a single slice of bread less when the price of wheat tripled. And yet poor countries, people were devastated, meaning that for essential resources, markets actually allocate the resource to the person who needs it least. Mm, so right. if you're looking at physiological benefits or human welfare, then markets are terrible for essential resources. But if you want to maximize monetary value, then again, I sell that loaf of bread to the, the rich person who's going to throw 40% in the garbage, but will pay me more than the destitute person. Then I maximize monetary value. I maximize GDP. And that's, you know. All right. Well, then let's let's segue into uh, the climate crisis and the proposal on how to save the world, which is, you know, like the carbon credit market yeah. Yeah. Uh, and net zero. And this is how we're going to pay to protect forests and protect people, even though we're going to really throw indigenous people off their lands in order to then claim it as credited. Like, how can ascribing a monetary value to an ecosystem when it was the original ascribing of that monetary value to its resources that rendered us in this situation in the first place. How can that be the solution? Yeah, yeah. No, so I, so again, this is the same thing. As I mentioned with food, you know, if um, you raise the price of food, it's poor people who stop consuming it. Yeah. Same with fossil fuels. So the, the percentage of income poor people spend on fossil fuels is much higher than the percentage of income rich people spend, right, even though they consume way, way less. Mm. But what that means is that any increase in the price of fossil fuels is going to you know, take a larger share of a poor person's income than a rich person's. And poor people will often be forced to reduce consumption while rich people won't even notice. Um, and so what it is, it's a system in which the people who contributed least to the problem are mm -hmm. those expected to do the most for, to, you know, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it's wildly unfair. There are fairer ways to do it. Um, and so the, the interesting thing about economists is they're really concerned about efficiency, which is driven by prices, but they're typically not very concerned about distribution. So one thing you could do is you could say that, okay, you know, we have, um, uh, let's say that, the U.S. has to drive, you know, we have to drive our CO2 emissions down to zero by 2050. And what we're going to do is we're going to uh, give everybody in the country an equal right to pollute. Um, and that rate will go down to zero by 2050. Okay. But you'd have a little permit in which um, if you want to consume any fossil, just like in World War II, if you wanted to go buy fossil fuels, you needed rationing coupon. So you can think of this like rationing coupons like we did in World War II. But in this case, you could have it is rationing coupons that could be sold. And that means poor people could sell some of their coupons to rich people, which would help redistribute wealth. And then another interesting thing about this, though, is it's the nature of essential resources that the less you have, the more total revenue you generate. So I gave the example of wheat supplies falling a little bit, mm -hmm. leading to the price to triple. So that meant price times quantity, which is goes up the less we have. And this is a characteristic of any essential resource. But now what happens if you give people the right, everybody has the equal right to emit pollution. And if the government cuts that right to emit, you have less emissions, which means the price goes up dramatically, which means that poorer people could now sell their right for much, much more. 
and it would be a greater redistribution of wealth. So suddenly you would have like 80 to 90% of the economy saying, let's cut emissions because that will make me, you know, uh, redistribute wealth to me. Um, and I'm not saying that this is the, the beat. I'm not, you have to think very carefully about how to do this. Mm. These things can easily be, um, you know, I don't believe in this, some kind of utopian solution, but I do believe that that at least would align incentives. So first of all, the tighter your restrictions, the greater, the the better the distribution of wealth, because it's the rich people who are going to buy it and the poor people who are going to sell it. And the tighter your restrictions, the more value your permits are. So most of the population would see, you know, suddenly they'd be more in line um, behind doing this. And um, so it is one approach. But I, I, you know, I certainly do not believe for a second the market is, you know, going to solve all our problems. I think we need massive investments um, in, uh, you know, and sequestration, ecological restoration. And of course, you know, this idea that we can um, get rid of our, you know, 86% of our energy use is fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are like magic. They're so powerful. They have so much energy. You know, I think we should have a national push your car to work week. So people <laughs> know how important fossil fuels are. And, uh, you know, and that would, um, but, you know, so we, but we have to, we can't reduce the use of fossil fuels without radically changing our entire economy mm. in profound ways. Mm. But there are, I think there are a bunch of intelligent moves we could make. See, the the scheme, let's say, that you propose of people having the equal right to pollute and then that giving the opportunity to the poor to kind of sell off their right to pollute more. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem of values, though, does it? In which um, polluting is still seen as a right, uh, in right. which um, looking at, like, distributing the poor redistributing wealth to the poor is only if they can give you something in return as well, rather than just like a basic human right of collaboration um, yeah. and of care, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my things is markets, you know, everything in markets is preference weighted by purchasing power. Yeah. So the more money you have, the more control you have over resources and everything. Yeah. Whereas, and that's the one dollar, one vote principle. But I look at our shared inheritance from nature, um, you know, why would that be one dollar one vote shouldn't that be one person one vote at most and mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. we have to account for the other um you know other species but still if we're talking about rights it does seem that a rich person should have no more right to throw co2 into the atmosphere than a poor person and right now of course the rich people are responsible for like 90 percent of the emissions mm -hmm. and you know i consider myself among the rich yeah um you know even though i don't drive or very rarely drive and um you know try my best but still i'm an american i you know um it's uh just the just my taxes alone probably give me a heavier ecological footprint than you know mm -hmm. somebody from india to me what's so fascinating about everything you're discussing is that it involves you know social justice it involves climate reparations it involves um creating a new economy tackling the problem of emissions it seems like the there is a manner in which people are trying to address the ecological crisis that also addresses all the other crises that um go hand in hand with it and with all of the movements that are currently happening across the world in the left that are pushing but they're they're kind of disparate all these movements everybody's kind of got their own area of expertise and that's what they need to happen um but if you boil it down to a question of values and um collaboration and you look at the past say i mean what after the boom after world war ii if you look at that as the blip 
as the anomaly in human history yeah. in which we could consume lots yeah. and in which people could have lots of kids and and yeah competition was that was the way to go forward i mean if we could just change the narrative um it would address so many if not all of the social social economic ecological problems that we see today yeah yeah no and you know for sure that i mean that's one of the big things about ecological economics is we look at all those things as mm. integrally intertwined and you can't really separate them so i, I kind of look at climate crisis we all see oh this is an existential threat but there's billions of people who are having existential threats due to their race their yeah. socioeconomic group, their gender. Yeah. And the idea that I really do believe that you can only solve something like climate change through cooperation and mm -hmm. collaboration. And the idea that people would cooperate with me to solve a problem that threatens me if I'm not willing to cooperate with them to solve a problem that threatens them, okay. that's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. I would, still, that, I would still like to, sorry, I would still like to pin you down on a, it's, it's a good or it's bad. And this is the journalist in me coming out here. Um, yeah. But this idea of uh, using carbon credit, mar it's applying yeah. the uh, economics of the market to try and save the world or save the forests or net zero, whatever, good or bad. So my view on this actually is that um, we need to try, I take an evolutionary perspective. Like if we have some species has some adaptation, is it good or bad? Mm. Species have, you know, there's so many adaptations occurring all the time or, you know, uh, um, mutations, I should say mutations. Some are good, some are bad. You try a bunch and see what works. So I right. think we don't have a lot of time. I think we need to try, you know, just a huge number of different um, approaches. But what we need is very clear criteria for judging whether they're good or bad. And right now, the, judge, the judgment is based on, does it contribute to economic growth? Does it increase monetary values? And that's absolutely the wrong criteria. We need to have criteria saying, does this help actually protect our global ecosystems? Does it lead to greater, you know, more just distribution, greater social equity? Um, and, you know, those have to be the, the leading points. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate of trying a lot of different things, but with clear criteria for determining what works and what doesn't. What doesn't work, reject it. What does work, try variations to get something better. Yeah, like maybe there are things in, in this that will work and would work for yep. the future. Yep. And, mm. Yeah. And, and this is one of the deals is that I'm not like, um, you know, I, I have serious issues with capitalism um, where, you know, it's individual choice and private property rights is totally inappropriate for the type of collective action problems we face. Right. And it's really based on, you know, preference weight of purchasing power, all this. But I do think that prices can be used, you know, from time to time. It's a useful tool. So I think it's like if you look at the market as this magical mechanism that achieves some kind of, you know, utopian utility maximization, that's pure nonsense. Mm. But judicious use of prices can achieve good goals. We have to be very careful to make sure they are. And there's a lot of evidence actually showing that when you pay somebody to do something, it can undermine their desire to do it for because it's the right thing to do. And it's called... <laughs> motivation crowding and they have lots and lots of classic examples the one was there was the one of the famous ones that's always cited is an israeli daycare uh, a lot of parents were arriving late to pick up their kids and they wanted to stop this so they charged a, a late fee you know if you came late you had to pay a fine and what actually happened is before arriving on time was a social obligation yeah. it was the right thing to do then it became a monetary transaction. So everybody started arriving late mm. and they realized that was a failure. So they stopped doing the award, but it was too late. They changed people's way of thinking about the problem. So people kept arriving later and later. 
And it's this idea that um, I think, you know, humans really are motivated. Um, you know, good people do put the group ahead of the individual. And very often, you know, they will make a lot of sacrifice and do a lot of things to do that. Um, but then once you flip it over into the market model, which is really putting the individual ahead of the society, and you get them to think about it in terms of a market, then people become far more selfish. And you have to be extremely careful with any, you know, kind of monetary incentives you use not to just kind of flip somebody's underlying rationale or moral choices. Um, and, and that's something I have to be very, very careful about. That's interesting. And, you know, that's something that we've seen in um, second world countries, which are never, ever talked about. And yet they're such a great example of the things that you're discussing, like when um, essentially capitalists come in and, you know, I do a lot of work about Malaysia and essentially the forest capitalists came in and said, you know, hey, if you cut down your forest and stuff, you know, we can give you a little bit of something, something we can give you some cash. There's a new way to like look yeah. at this and value it. Um, and there are many indigenous people that went oh okay well that that sounds good then yeah sure i'll do that this motivation crowding thing and then they start to take these people who were at at one with their environment even just a generation before or even within the same generation now see that very forest purely as timber rather than the the their home uh because a monetary value was ascribed to it and it shifted their relationship to it uh, the other thing, so this is, uh, I think it was David Corton who had interviewed the Minister of Finance of Malaysia, and he had said, you know, okay, forests, they're growing at like 2 3% a year, and, you know, we can invest the money at 7 to 10% a year, so I'm really looking forward to chopping down the forests and converting it into money that will grow faster. Oh, my <laughs> God, the Minister of Finance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just goes to show expertise is a <laughs> bit of a myth. <laughs> yeah, and that, that idea of super narrow expertise. And in academia, you're rewarded for very narrow disciplinary research. Mm. So I was like carrying, I was studying the Amazon for my PhD and I was carrying a textbook on Amazonian, or not a book on Amazonian ecology. And my advisor said, why are you reading that? And I said, well, I understand that I'm supposed to look at a problem and apply whatever tools and methods are necessary to address it. And he said, no, you're here to learn a set of tools and methods that you apply to any problem you look at. And mm -hmm. so it was a radically different way of thinking. And I think it's very, very dangerous to have too narrow a perspective, um, which I think universities encourage in a very harmful way. Well, I mean, I, surely that's part of being in the information economy, but also being in a, in a capitalist economy um where you put a price on everything and also the whole point is that only the one percent can win right or the 0 0.1 percent uh, i mean i used to run a, a wee publishing house that published dissertations in philosophy and the ridiculous titles that people used to come up with because it had to be an original piece of work like the ridiculous things that they had to study to find their niche because everything had already been it already been said yeah, yeah, you know the yeah. postmark the french they said it all <laughs> in the 50s and 60s um but there was no idea of like you can collaborate with somebody else or you can even take the work of somebody else and just interrogate it. You don't always have to build upon it. You can actually build into something else. Like, no, then you don't get your PhD. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, 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 I think everything is very clearly interconnected. Somebody, I don't know who said it, but uh, says, you know, in the real world, there's problems. In the university, there's disciplines. Mm. Um, and, you know, in that narrow and the reward, I mean, we are really expected to be very narrow, focused on our discipline, publishing only in our field. And actually, there's a good study called the Superiority of Economists, 
which is clearly tongue in cheek. But um, uh, the authors found that economists are the least interdisciplinary of any discipline and proud to be so. <laughs> and they have the most narrow view. So it's very, there's like five journals affiliated with the five leading, you know, um, uh, programs and they publish all the same. There's very little room for independent thought. And I always refer to my, I don't refer to my doctorate in economics, I refer to my indoctrination. <laughs> fortunately failed to take hold. I think I came in, I had a background in biology. I thought that inoculated me against the bad science. Oh, very and I had nice. parents with good ethical values. And I thought that it inoculated me against the bad morals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how many universities are offering ecological economics? Um, Exceedingly few. Yeah. So in the U.S., there's individuals. Rensselaer used to have a program, but I don't think it's viable anymore. Um, and in that, so the econ department here, um, you know, they really they won't let their students take my classes for econ credit. Um, and they're literally, apparently, the my students told me this that the environmental economist um, said he was so sick of my students asking. He was so sick of my TAs asking questions. He would give extra credit to any of his students who would beat up my TAs. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> it's clearly tongue in cheek. Yeah. But the idea is that, you know, um, and I, whereas I tell my students, I say, if um, you take a course in economics and it doesn't help you understand the world, it's useless. Mm. And if it's contradicted by what's happening in the world, it's wrong. <laughs> and it's your job to test the theories against reality every day. Yeah. And so that's, you know, they have assignments to do that. And they're there. And I tell them science advances by poking holes in existing theories. Mm -hmm. And that's your job. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I tell them never to believe me just because I say it. Absolutely. No, no. Absolutely. So um, why do you think there is a resistance even in, in, in academia? Uh, because, I mean, you know, universities aren't aren't run just purely by the economics department. I mean, surely there's people that are interested in bringing in new schools of thought. It's interesting. I mean, and um, I mean, I do think there's this idea that, you know, scientists are in doc. Well, you know, we're trained in a certain way of seeing the world and we internalize that so deeply. Mm. It's very, becomes very difficult to think outside the box. And, you know, there's this famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And he actually said that most breakthroughs in science come from people who are not indoctrinated in their discipline, mm. what he calls a paradigm. And that it's very tough to challenge paradigms. So like Boltzmann, who came up with the laws of thermodynamics, or I mean, he, the laws of thermodynamics are known. He came up with a formulation of mechanical statistics for thermodynamics. He was so scoffed at, he tried to commit suicide. Yeah. And when you, and now, of course, he's accepted as like, you know, of course that's true. But there's always intense resistance um, to different views. And in economics, I do think there's evidence that, you know, the powerful players fund econ programs to teach something that keeps them the powerful players. There's just that story of like the Chicago school of after yeah. the, the CIA had toppled whatever bloody democratic government there was in Chile or whatever. Chile, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. they set up an econ. That how, was like, hmm, how are we going to ensure the future of this country does exactly as we want? We're going to send our economists and teach the students. <laughs> and apparently, I don't know how true it is or not, but in Brazil during the military dictatorship, what they would do is when they had people who seemed like they were going to be troublemakers, they would fund them to get a PhD in economics, no. which would take away their radical leanings. No, you're joking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I need a source for that. I need to look that up. That's yeah, amazing. I, know, I, I hear these things and I struggle, like the story about the uh, Malaysian uh, Minister of Finance. I'd forgotten where I read that. And then David Corton reminded me that it, that was in um, 
one of his uh, uh, books. And then there was another quote that was by Lawrence Summers, basically saying that people are, you know, people are the same everywhere. So if somebody tells you that, you know, market economy wouldn't work like that in their country, that they're total idiots. And I forget the exact quote, but I wanted to find that quote. And then I just was talking to Naomi Klein not too long ago. And she, she, that was from her book. So I was like, oh, great. I saw the reference again. But okay, I don't I don't understand how your all of your work isn't more out there in the world. Like you're all connected. You're all of this network, which I am completely, you know, I'm on the the coattails of. Um, and you're all working together to get this message out there. I mean, Naomi Klein, her stuff goes worldwide. Like yeah. how she's great. She's great at getting a message out. Yeah. Like what what needs what needs to be done? Does it need to kind of circumvent? you know, mainstream, yeah. I don't like to say that because I'm a journalist, but still mainstream media or politicians or yeah. leaders or whatever and get directly to see directly into the 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 public consciousness? Is that what, like, what do we need to do? And so that's one of the things I really, um, yeah, that, that's always the question I don't have an answer to, except that I do think that social media is an incredibly effective way of communicating and changing minds. Yeah. But right now it's controlled by capitalism. Yeah. Which means that every, you know, the, the, their goal is to keep you online longer, to expose you to more and more ads. So really their goal is to promote excessive consumerism. And it turns out the way you get people to stay online longer is to give them very divisive uh, content. So I actually, look, we, we need this global cooperation to solve our problems. And one of the biggest problems is consumerism. And right now we have turned over you know, the, and I, I look at the value of, you know, Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, all of these people, they would have, their business would have zero value without the internet mm. and they didn't create the internet. Um, mm. But what I, I kind of think if we could take that social media and redirect it, so the algorithm, so there was zero commerce involved. I, you know, I believe in this idea of a knowledge commons, the information should be free and should be controlled by, um, it should be free and transnational. So you don't want a national government. You want a transnational alliance, which I actually think could start with universities. Um, but they would, they would own the, they would essentially have that knowledge wouldn't be owned. It'd be freely available to all, but they would manage it and they would control social media. But the idea is, so you'd be people from different countries. It wouldn't all be towards some, you know, nationalistic end, but your goals would be to, uh, get people to be less consumeristic. And to be more collegial, so be exactly the opposite algorithms of what we currently mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that could go a long ways towards, you know, because right now when you go on the internet, all you see is ads to buy stuff. And those ads tell you about the benefits of buying things. They never tell you about the costs. Yeah. So there's all these ecological costs and all these impacts on human, you know, and, you know, the, the children mining cobalt yeah. for our phones and you know or for your Congo tesla yeah yeah or tesla yep and uh so we never hear about the costs mm -hmm. and so we're just continually brainwashed into the oh you know all these benefits you'll get from buying more which we spend about the gdp of canada every year convincing people to buy more stuff oh, God. and if you and if you didn't do that you know we're not naturally insatiable yeah. it costs a fortune to make us think and I, I think part of the deal is they say, oh, you've got to consume this, you know, to meet some basic need. Like, you know, if, if I buy a Humvee, I'll be part of the in crowd. I'll be safe on the roads. I can go anywhere. I have freedom. And I buy the Humvee and I realize, gosh, I'm still not happy. I must need even a bigger car. Yeah. 
you know, if you're trying to satisfy your needs using the wrong things, yeah. it just doesn't work. Yeah. And then you just think, oh, I just need to be more. That's what makes us insatiable. Yeah. I actually think it's people are very easily satiated. I think, you know, we have to have an economy of sufficiency. We focus on, you know, just, and, and my view on this too is, sorry if I go on too long sometimes, no, no, but um, the, right now mainstream economics says the only thing that gives benefits to life is consumption. So it's work is a chore, work is disutility, consumption is utility. And so consumption is the variable we're focused on. My view is we live on a finite planet with 7.8 billion people. And if we all, we could have sufficiency for everybody. And then what we would do is say, okay, so how much we can consume is kind of a given. There's just not enough for us to consume more. So let's just change our economy and focus on making production as much fun as possible. So we're engaging with each other. We're working together. So the source of satisfaction now is the production side and not the consumption side, because that's, that's a given. Oh my God, that's genius. <laughs> And be, because people love to do that anyway, people love to work right. together. People, love to do, people get. There's nothing more fun than, and actually, I think working with people to overcome a challenge, yeah. working with, you know, builds community. It feels great, even if you're suffering while doing. It, even if you have, you're hard, you're working hard, you're sweating, you're, you know, hot and tired or whatever. Um, it makes you feel good. Oh my god, that's genius. That's just yeah, obviously. Or it's obvious. I think is the way I look at a lot of these things. I think. Most things that um, sound smart are actually just really obvious. Yeah, you, you can kind of feel them on a gut level to be right. But the yep. thing, the thing then is, you couldn't have a global economy because part of I think part of having this satisfaction in your own production or in working as a team is then also seeing the people that you care about benefit from it. Yeah, you know, when you yeah. make a good meal, you don't make a good meal to ship it off to the other side of the world and you know have somebody yeah. eat it that you don't know. You make it for your friends and your family, the people that you love. Hmm. Yeah. But we do continually, you know, they say that compared to, um, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, you know, if you saw somebody you didn't know, you either ran or killed them, you know, maybe thousands of years ago. And that modern people, yeah. uh, you know, partly due to our media and everything and, and the connectivity, were far more open and actually assign more moral value and moral standing to others. Um, and so we're reaching that point where, you know, I don't know, I'd, um, it's, it's another weird thing about capitalism, though, is, uh, you know, I have a cell phone. And I know that the metal mine for that cell phone probably exploited the hell out of people, terribly destroyed the environment and all these things. But weirdly enough, you know, somehow capitalism, I would never do those things to individuals, but through capitalism, I participate in it and don't even think about it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I have, I have one final question for you because I'm, I'm aware I'm taking up quite a lot of your time. Um, and this is the first time I've asked. Um, I've done about 10 episodes of these with like, you know, esteemed academics who have views and have done research that on a gut level seems completely in line with the human experience, but it's seen as a, like a little bit radical by the, the establishment. Um, and nobody has ever brought up left and right in their work huh. or what they do. It's, which is, I find so interesting because when I listen to all of you, it sounds, um, quite close to, to leftist values, you know, to taking care yeah. of one another. Um, and yet nobody talks about it. And so I want to know, is there any pushback uh, within academia from um, colleagues in the same fields that kind of that say, well, no, this is just, you know, socialism, or it's just um, leftist nonsense? Or, or do you think, given sort of the neoliberal era that we live in, and 
the extreme right, uh, the climate of, of, of extreme politicization of bipartisanships, do you think that because it kind of gives off, um, because it feels like it's quite leftist, if that's one of the reasons that it's not getting out as well? That's possible. We're not making, I mean, so, you know, when's the last time we had major environmental legislation in the United States was under the Republicans. It was the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, all under Nixon. Mm. And if you look back then, there was not that big a discrepancy between environmental values on the right, right. and left. And in terms of community, you know, caring about others, um, the right is phenomenal at that within their communities. Mm. So I have cousins who are, you know, far right evangelical Christians, but they would be phenomenal neighbors. Mm. They care deeply about people in their community. So I think one of the big differences is where you define your community. So I don't see this as right or left. Mm. I figure I'm looking at a bigger community. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting that uh, my cousins were raised in the Lilywhite suburbs. And my parents were opposed to segregation, so they took us to the inner city. So, you know, we went to school where I was always minority white. Um, and, uh, but it made me, you know, it, I think it gave me a much broader idea of who my group yeah. is. So, you know, and whereas I think that their groups were, you know, fellow church growing, going white suburbanites. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's exposure to others broadens your idea of the group. But I, so... So a lot of these ideas, and it is, you know, now, of course, our right wing in the United States has gone completely mm -hmm. insane, where, you know, science is anti, um, you know, it's considered left wing. And even, you know, Obamacare, um, that was actually developed by the Heritage Foundation, a far right wing uh, think tank, mm -hmm. developed the ideas of Obamacare, which were first implemented by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, and were considered right wing. As soon as Obama started talking about it, it became left wing. There Some of these environment, you know, these market solutions to pollution, like, um, you know, cap and trade systems for sulfur dioxide, that was introduced by the mm. Republicans. Um, and as soon as the Democrats said they were interested in it, it became, you know, unacceptable. So we have this really bizarrely divisive. I don't think it's I don't even think our politics are right yeah. and left. I think it was very clear that the Republicans they didn't care what any policy was. They just cared if Trump espoused yeah. it. They said, you know, they were very explicit that um, we don't have a platform. We do what Trump mm. says. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of ideas that um, I actually find when I talk to far right wing people about my vision for what a world should look like and what communities should be like, there's a hell of a lot of common yeah. ground. Yeah. Um, it's, it's people rallying each other on their sides. And the interesting thing is, in the universities today, I think there's a lot of McCarthyism coming from the oh, yeah. left, the really woke folks on the left, 100% supportive. But I do think the uh, means smack increasingly of McCarthyism, mm. and which, again, creates that division between groups that's so intense. There's no, you know, it's why some people say that my views are left wing. Um, but I think that has to do with, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's the increasing partisanism. It's, it is very interesting and it kind of takes us back to what you were saying at the beginning about um, groups and I protect my group, I collaborate within my group and it's because yeah. there's another group to go to be against or to be at war with as well. Um, yeah. And certainly the left is being accused of factionism, especially on university campuses right now. And it does seem like such a shame because I'm, it all comes from a good place of wanting to right the, the injustices yeah. that we see in the world, right the wrongs yeah. and all. 
and also you know the fact that the left has been so squeezed in recent years and young people have been so squeezed in recent years you know you kind of go for low-hanging fruit because it's the only wins that yeah. you get ideologically because everything else seems so bloody effed up yeah and yet it's just it, it's so interesting to me that uh when i speak with you and your colleagues there is no talk of, of uh political leaning um it kind of goes beyond politics by discussing a value system and by discussing a value system that surely actually does sit left and right. It's just, as you point out, their definition of group is different. Um, and yeah. I said, you know, it seems like something that could really bind together all the different social justice movements that are currently taking place in the world into one through movement of like, okay, well, if we focus on aligning our values to reciprocity or changing our economy so that it um, places focus on collaboration rather than competition, it would kind of automatically just start to solve the other problems, which is why I yeah. think it needs to be pushed out into the world a little bit more. Yeah. And so, you know, going on from what you're saying, I think that when people feel like they're struggling to get by, they have total insecurity about the future, um, you know, other jobs, they're not going to care about the environment. They're not going to care about these other things. And so I really think that the capitalism, you know, the Piketty, Piketty's book showed that uh, capital grows faster than the economy as a whole. So capitalist mm. capitalism, systematically allocates resource resources upwards to the mm -hmm. owners of capital. And, and there is a real class mm -hmm. division. But in the United States right now, it's a lot of the blue-collar workers in rural areas who are the hardest core um, right wing. And I really think we need an alliance. I think we have too much focus on identity politics, not enough on yeah. class. Um, but I also wonder, um, you know, maybe I do need to go overboard to make the changes we need. So I'm never sure whether, you know, this very woke culture, maybe that kind of bludgeoning is necessary. Mm. I don't know. I'm, I, like I say, I share the goals right down, you know, really share the goals, um, but uh, question the means. And especially because I think we've succeeded in, and I think the capitalists probably love this, that we've succeeded in dividing, um, you know, the working yeah, right. class and the deeply opposing yeah. camps and they would be natural allies. On that, I completely agree. But it, it's as you said yeah. about um, whether or not the carbon credit market will actually be helpful in the fight against climate change. It's that we have to try different things, surely. So maybe there is something that will come from woke culture. I mean, certainly, you know, the fact that different people are getting more visibility um, and that's a that that can only be a good thing. I think the problem is then when yeah. you start to identify that as the end goal visibility rather than actual right. systematic change because you know and systemic change is difficult and that's why people don't know how where and how to start fighting for it um but systemic yeah. change doesn't really come from thinking about the individual does it or even the individual within their group as defined by their individual characteristic it comes from yeah. the collaboration no, yeah, no, of the group capital g gotta be groups of groups my god this is fascinating i could talk to you all evening but much in the same way that nate platformed you is there someone that you would like to platform? Oh, geez. I mean, so the, you know, the person who had the biggest influence on me is Herman Daly, um, who is, you know, a phenomenal thinker. Um, uh, Bill Reese is very clearly able to articulate, you know, a lot of the challenges we face. Um, uh, trying to think um, over, um, yeah, there's so many good thinkers. Um, uh, Inga Ropke over, uh, she had a really um, good paper recently on just how to change, you know, how we should teach economics. And I think that was very valuable. Just, you know, don't even mention the market. Mm. Sure. You know, the, the really a different way to teach economics. There's um, 
trying to think. Uh, um, I was, you know, when I started in economics, um, it was very male dominated. So a lot of the people I name, like Bob Costanza is another person I think is very, you know, he's looking at a well-being economy, um, how we change the goals. He's also very good, very articulate. Um, Julia Steinberger is another person over, you know, pretty radical. She's over coming on, she's coming on uh, later in the month. <laughs> great, great. Yep. She's very good. And um, trying to think there's, uh, um, I mean, there, there are a ton of people. If I'd had a little more chance, I would have, uh, um, Ellie Perkins out of York is quite good too. Um, and, um, and then like, um, I'm trying to think who, uh, you know, if you want to get perspectives from developing countries, I'd be happy to give you Definitely. a, um, a current president of the Brazilian society, um, for ecological economics is, I got to think of his last name, Daniel. Um, I'm embarrassed. He's a friend. Cacheta. So Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L. And Kaisheta is C-A-I-X-E-T-A. And I could I could put you in touch with him. That would be fantastic. Um, and let's see, there's um uh and Peter May is another guy who's lived in his whole life in Brazil and knows a lot about you know deforestation issues and all that. Um uh but if any of these you want, I'd be happy to introduce you to any. And I could then also think of some oh. others. And I'm talking about the ecological economists, but there's a huge number of people like in this um you know, evolution of cooperation and all those things too, that are excellent. So if you would like to interview people there, I'd be happy to send you a list. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, it was, uh, I enjoyed it as well. It's always fun. To, and it's fun. And you know, your, your response is what so many of my students have, well, this is just obvious, <laughs> you know, how come it's not what's the mainstream view? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a, it's like the morality that you find in children, really, isn't it? You know, but like we yeah. know what's good and what's bad. How do you not get it wrong yeah. up there? <laughs> no, yeah, it takes a lot of training to of, uh, to get us to adopt the values of mainstream mm, economics. Apparently, four <laughs> years of it. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to learn more about Josh's work, I'll put links to his research over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you like this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription over at planetcritical.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.